2,000 years ago, there was a guy who took the title King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and even sometimes Son of God. Now, when we hear those phrases, especially in America, in the Western church, a lot of us immediately think, oh, that's Jesus. But in fact, those titles were first claimed by Caesar Augustus of the Roman Empire. That was the backstory that Jesus stepped into. That's the story of the Gospels and Acts that those that, that story is telling. And so we have to understand that it actually was way more subversive than we think, because if those were the titles Caesar was claiming, that when Jesus steps onto the scene and he declares, hey, actually, I am the true son of God, I am the Lord of Lords, I am the King of Kings, then it's subtly saying, well, if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. And that's deeply subversive, that's deeply offensive, and that quickly makes him and his followers the enemies of the state, which is, by the way, reasons why Christians in the first century were persecuted. If you, if you ask yourself, why were the Christians persecuted? Why were they seen as enemies of the state? If it was the modern gospel that we tell to people, I don't think that would have been the case. Because a lot of us, we say, hey, if you trust in Jesus, then you can go to a place really far away and you can go there when you die and it's really awesome and amazing and you'll leave this evil place. Now, there might be some truth to that, but that was not the bullseye of how they preached the gospel. Theirs was Jesus is Lord. Now reshape your whole identity, world, and life around that fact. And now Rome, with that first one, they would have been totally fine with that, right? If you say, hey, don't affect anything here, but it's just what you're talking about in the afterlife, Rome would have had no problem with that. They would have said, go ahead, do what you want, as long as you're just talking about the afterlife. But when you say, actually, reshape your life down here, and don't give your full allegiance to the king or to the state, but give it to this rabbi named Jesus who was crucified and then rose again, then that's deeply, deeply offensive. to see that it actually has deep implications, how we communicate the gospel or how we communicate that good news. And I think the bullseye of that fact is the kingdom or the kingdom of God or the reign and rule of God is another way to put it. And one interesting thing when you start looking at archeology span of the time is when they try to study or find statues of different kings of different periods, whether it's Xerxes or Caesar, they usually find that those statues are never in the capital city of that empire. They're usually in the most outer point of the colonies far away from the capital city. Now that's really interesting to think about, to ask yourself, well, why is that the case? And I think a main reason why we see that that's the case is you don't need a statue of Caesar in Rome because you have Caesar himself. And so the statues are our way of kind of putting those statues out as a spreading out, as a representative to put those out in the colonies and say, this is who's in charge. This is who is king. And I like to think of ourselves, humans, as image bearers of God to be those very things that God created the heavens and the earth and heaven is his dimension, his place where he's fully reigning and ruling. And he sends us out in Genesis one and two into that earth domain to be his representatives, to be his images, to be those living and breathing statues that say, look what it's like when God is king. Look what it's like when God is in charge or telling people this is who is in charge. And it also goes the other way too, by the way. If that statue is out in the colony, if it's a living, breathing human statue like us or that image and it rebels or it doesn't want to obey or, or maybe that area gets captured or whatever it is, if you stick with the imagery, then what happens is it starts to crumble. It starts to lose its image. It starts to lose its fullness and lose its wholeness. And I think that's a really interesting picture of sin 
in the scripture is that sometimes us as images, if we're not reflecting God and who he is, we're reflecting something else and we actually start to begin to kind of lose our humanness, our wholeness and our fullness. And it really comes down to how do we see the kingdom or how do we see the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation because that'll define how we see the kingdom. I think there's one really huge improper way to look at it that I think a lot of us actually see it that way. And there's a proper way that I think is more biblical that sometimes I think we can try to go more towards. And the way I like to think about it is like two circles. If heaven is its own circle and earth is its own circle, we see in Genesis 1 that they're created on top of each other, two circles perfectly overlapping, kind of like a marriage. In the beginning was the heavens and the earth. But when sin happened, it fractured the cosmos, it fractured that marriage, and it divorced the two apart. Now, a lot of us, we think that it pulled them totally apart as two completely separate circles. So we have earth over here now, and we have heaven over here. But the problem with that is a lot of us then, when we start to become a Christian or we follow Jesus, we think, okay, now my job is to basically get people to follow Jesus and then to fly out of the earth circle over to the heaven circle. The whole mission of becoming a Christian is to get out of this evil place that's all gonna burn one day and get to heaven. Heaven is the end goal, which I think is true, but with a twist on the true story and narrative of the scripture. If you read it the right way, you see that actually in Genesis, when it fractures, they never fully separate. They kind of turn into almost a Venn diagram where there are two circles overlapping. In that middle place, the Jewish people actually called that the temple or the place where heaven and earth collided, where heaven and earth met. It was where that connection point was happening, where heaven is God's space and earth is our space. And the temple is that place where they come together in that marriage again. But the temple was the only place where that happened. And then you follow the narrative all the way down to Jesus. And Jesus says scandalous things like, I am the true temple. If you take down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. Or John 1:14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, which literally means the word became flesh and tabernacled. He templed among us. So now that middle space is no longer a building. That middle space is now a person named Jesus. And this person has feet and it's a human and he moves and walks and breathes and starts taking that heaven dimension and pushing it into the earth dimension. He, another way to put it is he goes around and he starts making pockets of heaven. He starts invading earth with little pieces of heaven. And then Jesus's words start to make way more sense. In Matthew 4, when Matthew tries to summarize the gospel, he actually says Jesus begins going around to the villages and saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near, meaning the reign and rule or the heaven dimension of God is near. It's, it's at hand. You can reach out and you can touch it in the person and work of Jesus. Or even the Lord's Prayer, which is the most famous, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So a lot of us, our mission as Christians is actually to evacuate earth when Jesus's mission was the complete opposite. His mission was to actually infiltrate earth with the power and the grace and the beauty of heaven. And then when he resurrects and he commissions the disciples, you see that Acts all the way down to Revelation 22 becomes our job now of taking that, of going out and invading earth with little pockets of heaven. We're this kingdom vehicle where we go around like those statues and say, hey, this is what it looks like when God is in charge, when God and Jesus is king.
so do you have that picture? Do you think about the kingdom like that? For me, it makes life way more vibrant and way more important because I know that everything I do matters and everything I do is an opportunity to infiltrate what it looks like to be a disciple and a kingdom follower of Jesus, whether it's making him king of my finances, sexuality, marriage, job, athletics, food, whatever it is, our job is to rip down heaven onto earth and make it real and show other people what that's like. And three things I think of that fit this very perfectly that you see in scripture, three main themes on what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen. The first one I like to say is thankfulness or thanksgiving. If you read the New Testament and you do a word study on when that word comes up, you'll see it dozens if not hundreds of times that we're called as disciples to be people who are thankful. No matter what's happening, we're supposed to offer thanksgiving almost as a sacrifice to God. And the reality is if Jesus is king, if God is now king, not an earthly ruler who fails us, whether it's David in the Old Testament, even though he tried, or whether it's an earthly, not good, evil empire ruler like Caesar, but no, if God is king, then we actually can be thankful in all things because we know ultimately he's in charge, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, and he knows and is taking care of it, and so we can have and be thankful. And then the second one is feet washing. When you look at a kingdom citizen or a Christian, one thing that was really noted about them in the first century that was different from everyone else is they broke down all these socioeconomic barriers and they were huge believers of service and sacrificial love. Jesus himself in John 13, I believe, gets down on his hands and knees and washes his disciples' feet. It's actually debated whether or not that was a job only for servants or if it was so actually dirty that no one did it. But the fact is that Jesus, as the leader and the teacher, comes alongside them and actually washes their feet. And then when he's done, says, now this is a model for you to enact. This is how people are going to know you're followers of me. And I don't think it always was feet washing, even though I think we could do more of that. I think it, it, it was a, a mode of serving. How do we serve people in a way that shows them we love them, we care for them, and there's compassion for those individuals, and that we're modeling what Jesus has done for us. He came low, he came down, he came to this earth, he humbled himself, so if we're followers of him, then we should follow him. And the last one is enemy love, or loving your enemies. Jesus, in this most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, says do not resist an evil person. Love your enemies, bless those who persecute you, turn the other cheek. If they tell you to carry something, carry, double of it. He, see, there's two different ways to get what you want per se. And the empire way of getting what you want is usually by violence or coercion or power. It says, you're going to do this because I'm going to force you to do it. But the kingdom of Jesus totally flips that on its head. And it's a beautiful kingdom because it's the only kingdom, the only reigning domain where instead of being by violence or coercion or force, Jesus says, I'm actually going to give my life as an offering, as a sacrifice for these people. And that, rather than forcing them, will woo them and compel them by my love. And so that is how we are kingdom citizens out in the world. Is are we loving our enemies? Or do we are we more about revenge or vengeance or all these different things? Do we love our enemies? Do we bless them? Are we looking for opportunities to actually be known? I mean, what, what if that's the case? What if Christians were actually known as the people who never hold a grudge, who always forgive, who never took vengeance, who actually radically, and I mean radically, loved and blessed their enemies?
So there's kind of two takeaways or two parts to this kingdom message that can really affect us that I wanna challenge you guys with. The first one is the, the downward. Are, are you letting the reign and rule of Jesus be true in your life? Are you bringing your finances, your marriage, your athletics, whatever it is under the reign and rule of Jesus? Because if we're Christians, if we're followers of Jesus, then we should look like kingdom citizens. And then the second part is then if, if that's becoming true of your life or if you're bringing your whole life under that domain and under that rule, then are you going out and being a faithful kingdom citizen, showing people what it's like saying, hey, this king is worth following. This king is worth being next to because he's beautiful and he's amazing and he's full of grace. And so are you letting the downward affect you, but are you also going out and being that kingdom citizen that we are called to be?